Why would you want to see me, Carla? <laughs> We're going to take a. I see you. We're going to take a, a detour tonight. My, as you guys have already learned, my family's headed off in 48 hours to uh, go on vacation. Going to be gone nine days, so that sort of thing takes some preparation <laughs> and a lot of preparation at work as well as at home. So I thought we could revisit a text that I love. I think you, I'm sure you love it as well. It's a popular one um, and that I'm comfortable with. So we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark this evening in chapter 4. Mark 4. I guess stay tuned for Wednesday updates. I'll talk about that later. I don't know about you. It's been it's been quite a while since I've flown on a commercial airliner. Um, I don't think it matters really though how long it's been. I think '04 was a while. Actually, yeah. Weird. I just realized it was '04'04'04, uh, which is today, right? Except the '04 part. My grandpa died. That was the last time I flew on an airplane. So that's odd. Um, but no matter how long it's been. I could go the rest of my life without flying again. I'll always vividly remember the anxiety that, that you feel when you hit that pocket of turbulence and the light comes on, please fasten your seatbelts. Uh, if you've never been there, you get the butterflies in your stomach and you do fasten your seatbelt once you're a rebel and you usually pull it just a little bit extra tight. <clears throat> um, I can't, I've never flown overseas before. I've been to Canada and Mexico, but never been across the, across the pond. But I can imagine, I think I would be ten times more anxious if I was in the middle of the ocean and that sort of thing happened. Especially, sometimes you hit serious pockets where the plane can jolt. Sometimes the suitcase luggage racks can even open up. I was just thinking, what what would it be like if you're in the middle of the ocean, flying over the middle of the ocean, and you hit these massive pocket turbulence of the planes jolting and jostling and, and things are flying all over the place, and you see the stewardess, kind of with an exasperated look on her face, come out of the cockpit, and as she's walking by you, she whispers to another flight attendant, I can't believe the pilot was asleep. What would you feel? Or what would you say, you know, when you get off the airplane, you pass right by the pilot, they usually stand there with the door open. What would you say? That's sort of the situation in Mark 4.35. The disciples have a similar encounter with Jesus, where it seems... Their pilot has fallen asleep on the job. He's supposed to be guiding them and directing them, and they think he's asleep in their time of need. So that's the that's the setup for our text this morning, tonight. It's a long day, I guess. Um, let's stand for the Word of God. Mark 4, we're going to start in verse 35. On that day, when, G- when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling up. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? Father, we pray that you would come and calm our hearts and give us attentiveness to focus on your word tonight. Expose our sin as we see your righteousness. Help us to feel and see in even greater measure our need for Christ and the surpassing value of His righteousness that's so freely given to us. And just rejoice and exult in that tonight. We pray in His name. Amen. May be seated. What a good story. This is not a really good story, Mark 4. Uh, it's just one of those favorites. I think it's one that every preacher worth his salt has preached on at least once, if not five to ten times. It's very vivid and engaging. Uh, Matthew and Luke tell the same account, but if you go read those later, they just lack some of the gripping details that Mark has. Um, 
that's just that's just one more reminder, one more evidence, I think, that a fuller title for the Gospel of Mark might be the Gospel according to St. Peter as retold by Mark. Um, most scholars think that Mark relies on the Apostle Peter's eyewitness testimony for his book. I, I, I believe that as well. Um, that's one reason that it reads... It, it reads and writes like an Apostle Peter. It's abrupt, short, and yet gripping in its detail. It's really cool. So Mark, Mark starts out in verse 35. On that day, we'll stop right there for a second. On that day, what day is he talking about? Well, um, it's hard to know exactly how far that day goes back. It definitely goes back into chapter 3. It seems this is probably the end of what's known as the longest day of ministry. Um, again, people differ as to when exactly in the text it starts, but no matter how you slice up chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, this has been, the, this is the end of an incredibly, horribly, terribly, very long day. Reminds me of that book. Uh, Yes, that's the one. <laughs> this is the this is the good things happen this day. It's not a terrible day, but it's a terribly long, long day. Um, what's clear is that Jesus had had a very long day of teaching, and he taught all day not not to a small group of people calmly listening in like a little small you know like a setting like this. He taught all day. He was surrounded all day by a throng of of a vicious crowd. The, the word actually, the, the word here back in um, the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1 there, is that they are encroaching upon him. It's not just that this great crowd is surrounding him, it's that, if you imagine being in the Middle East during an uh, a uprising of some sort, you know, if you're in Egypt when they're protesting, that's Jesus is kind of in the middle of it, and they're all crowding in around him. And so his disciples are actually, they try to help him, maybe they're fearful for him. They take him into a boat and they anchor the boat just off the, just off the coast so that he can speak to everybody from there because they're just, this crowd is just going crazy. And he's, he's done that all day. He probably woke up very early in the morning. It's probably the same day that he got up, it says, before the sun came up to go out and pray and be alone with his father in prayer. Um, and then all day spent in this. So this is just a terribly long day. People are following his every move, not giving him a spare moment. And it's at the end of that such day that the sun starts to go down, and Mark says, Jesus told his disciples, let's go to the other side. Let's get in a boat and go to the other side of the lake, the other side of the sea. Um, he's been teaching alongside the Sea of Galilee, which, which I'm sure you know is actually just a very large lake that they call the Sea of Galilee. He's been on the western side of the sea, which is the Israelite side. Um, and now he's going to tell his disciples they're going to make the it's about an eight or so mile trip straight across depending on where you are into Gentile territory which has a lot of other significance but we won't go there verse 36 and leaving the crowd they took him with them in the boat just as he was and other boats were with him it's a really interesting detail it's one of those I said it's very very specific to Mark he says they have to leave the crowd it wasn't like the crowd just died off. At the end of the day, they're going to go find somewhere to rest. Um, the crowd didn't give him a moment. He has to leave them. No doubt for the same reason he left the crowd in chapter 1. In chapter 1, we find out Jesus didn't come to do miracles, contrary to what some people think. That's not why Jesus was here. Jesus did miracles as a sort of secondary purpose to serve his primary purpose. He did miracles to evidence the arrival of the kingdom of God and its power and to give credence to his preached word. He came to proclaim the kingdom of God. And so the miracles were just a a method to serve that end. And when the miracles got in the way of the kingdom being proclaimed and spread, he would stop. Okay? And so this is one such instance. But Mark tells us three really interesting things here. He says first that they took him with them in the boat, the disciples. That's weird. It's a very weird thing for Mark to say. And then he says, just as he was. Like, what does that mean? Uh, I, I, think, I think he's reminding us that the last time Mark specifically said exactly where Jesus was located is back in verse 1. And 
Um, again, they took him into a boat just off the shore because of the angry, the excited mob. So apparently, he's still in the boat. They just grab him, maybe they transfer him to another boat, and they take off. They don't give him one moment to go on the shore, get his things collected, have a moment's rest, sit down, whatever. He's standing up teaching. They snatch him into the boat, and they're gone. Um, Just as he is. But it's strange that Mark says, they take him. They take him. That's very odd, isn't it? Everywhere else, Jesus is leading. Jesus is the one directing. Jesus is the one saying, let's go here, let's do that. This is what we're going to do, guys. But here it says, they take him. I think this is another indication that Jesus is dog-tired. I think he's just totally wiped. So exhausted that maybe even physically, they have to help him, direct him, from one boat to the other. He's completely wiped out. And the last thing Mark tells us is that other boats still followed him. Even still, he's, he's almost saying, give me a minute. And they're still following him, still getting in their boats and going after him. That's the context. Now, here's the thing about the Sea of Galilee. Even though it's only eight to, six to eight miles wide, its geography apparently causes the most horrendous storms. It's because it's below sea level, and you can read a million gripping accounts of this, but at the end of the day, everybody says, because it's below sea level and encroached between two mountain ranges, that's the perfect storm. That's the perfect situation for just crazy storms to blow in swiftly and powerfully. <clears throat> and it's still famous for that today. Jesus and his disciples are going to make this eight-mile journey in a wooden boat about 18 feet by 7 feet wide, it would have had two oars on each side, so a total of four rowers, or, or two, four oars, maybe two rowers. <clears throat> and there was a rudder at the stern to steer. So as they're paddling their way across the lake in the dark hours of the night, now the sun has gone down, one of these sudden, swift, powerful storms comes sweeping across the lake. Keep in mind, at least four people in this boat are professional fishermen. The, the, the ocean is a scary place for me. I've been out there a few times, but just being out where you can't see the land, there's just an uneasiness about it. But I've always gone with like on a fishing charter or something like that, and these guys, you know, they're just they're just pros. They don't sweat anything, right? They don't they don't sweat the waves. They can do the the, the ocean walk, all that stuff. Well, there's four professional fishermen who made their living on this very lake. It's not like they're from another lake. They're from this lake. This is where they fish day in, day out. This is where they grew up with their dad fishing this lake. And they're almost certainly in one of their actual boats. They're not even on somebody else's boat. They're probably on Peter, one of these guys' boats that they fished in every day of their life. This shouldn't be a big deal, right? And yet in verse 37, Mark uses the Greek word that we would translate hurricane, if it were on an ocean. If this were an ocean-bearing storm, this would be a hurricane. Uh, it's a very, very serious storm. The waves, Mark says, are filling up the boat. The boat is beginning to take on water and go down. <clears throat> the wind is blowing so hard. And just the short end of this is really simple. Expert fishermen conclude, we're sinking. We're going down. And in a day without life jackets, electronic beacons, much less Coast Guard rescue helicopters, you go down in a boat in the middle of an eight-mile-wide lake in the middle of the night, you're dead, right? But in verse 38, Mark tells us the craziest thing. This little boat was practically bouncing from wave to wave, cold spray splashing all over them. They're drenched to the bone. And now they're terrified. But to top it all off, Mark says, but... That's what's happening. I mean, we're dying. But Jesus is in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Expert fishermen crying like babies to their mama because they're going to drown in the middle of the lake. And Jesus is sleeping like a baby. The cushion referred to here, the stern, and stern for you not to challenge folks is the back of the boat. He's He's on the stern, sleeping on the cushion, that is the seat where the steer man is supposed to be sitting. All right. So remember, there's four oars, a rudder at the back. They don't have a steering wheel with the captain's chair. Somebody sits back there with a piece of wood and turns the, the rudder. He's sitting in that spot. Okay. Now, unfortunately, in all my research, 
I found plenty of corroborating evidence that that's where the steering man is supposed to sit. But I, I couldn't find any one commentator ask the question, why was Jesus sitting there sleeping? But for me, okay, he's sleeping. They think they're drowning. He's sitting where the man's supposed to be steering. So either Jesus had the job that night to steer the boat, or he's sleeping in the back and there's somebody else trying to reach over him while they're drowning, you know, trying to steer the boat. I, I think... I think at worst Jesus was the one designated to do that and these guys are paddling for their life and they look back and they're going in circles because the, the man supposed to be steering is falling slumped over the rudder. <clears throat> Not surprisingly, that's too much for one of them. One of the disciples decides this is just too much. I've got to say something. And unfortunately, and only Mark tells us this, whoever did speak up, probably Peter, since Mark tells us this, didn't speak up politely. <laughs> they didn't ask a nice question. They rebuke Jesus in their frustration. Whoever it was, based on how Jesus responds, you can see this person is speaking on behalf of the whole group. He says, Rabbi, teacher. Doesn't say Lord. Doesn't say my God. Doesn't say Master, Sovereign One. He just says, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They think they're dying. And it seems like Jesus doesn't give two rips. Don't you care? They didn't say. They didn't say. Don't you care that? Don't you care about dying? They didn't say that. They said, "Don't you care that we are perishing?" What are they saying? Don't you care about us? Does our life mean anything to you? Well, Jesus wastes no time. Verse thirty-nine sits up, directs his attention to the waves, and says, "Quiet." Uh, put a muzzle on it. I, the, the emotive force behind the original here is, is sort of like I used to tell my classes during substitute teaching days for the grade schoolers. You know, um, cut it out. Stop. Cut it out. That's, what, that's kind of what Jesus. That's a colloquial way of what Jesus said. It sounds all biblical. Peace be still. That's not what he said. He said, "Stop. Quit." And like one preacher described it, this. What happened next isn't what happens when you've got two roughhousing toddler boys in a bathtub. You take them out. The waves continue to crash for a second as they slowly settle down. That's not what happened here. There's massive swells piling over the top of the boat, filling up the boat. Jesus says, stop it, and there's perfect calm. Defying the laws of physics. Energy has to be spent somewhere. It's supposed to crash it's supposed to crash onto the, the beach and spend, expend energy on the, the rocks and the shore. Not this time. Just stopped. Just stopped. And a great calm, Mark says in verse 39. This, this amazing, overwhelming display of power terrified the disciples, of course, in verse 41. In fact, the wording suggests they're more afraid now than they were when they thought they were going to die. They're just completely overwhelmed. I lost everybody. Somebody is dying. <laughs> Finally, now that the, that danger is averted, he turns his attention to the disciples and he says, you know what? Thank you for bringing that to my attention. We almost died. Not quite. <laughs> Not quite. He says, why are you so afraid? Or, or, or better translated, why are you acting like a coward? Why are you being so cowardly? Have you still no faith? Have you been with me all this time? If you walk with the Gospel of Mark and just look at the stories, Jesus was thinking, did you see me shut up that demon in the synagogue? Were you there for that? Did you see me take Peter's mother-in-law and, and heal her with a one spoken word? Were you there for that? Or how about when I cleared away leprosy in a split second? Or when the roof is falling apart and a paralyzed man's dropped down in front of me and I told him to get up and he just walked away. Were you there for that? And have you still no faith? And, and Jesus is expressing surprise like, wow, you still don't have faith? This is just disappointment, right? This is disappointment and rebuke. And now the disciples are even more afraid than they were in the storm. That's the story. I wanted to walk through it like that for a few reasons. That's how Mark presents it in wonderful detail and narrative suspense. But, but what effect is that supposed to have on us? How, how are we to respond to this revelation of Christ? 
like the, all the gospel writers, Mark's doing two things with this passage. He's revealing Jesus to us, and he's also giving us a glimpse of discipleship. So here's Jesus, and this is what following him ought to look like in light of that. So, so picture us living in absolute darkness. We, we are living in absolute darkness. Mark turns on a flashlight and points it at Jesus. We're in a cave where you can't see your fingers two inches from your eyeballs. And all of a sudden, a spotlight flipped on in the middle of the cave, and it's just pointed right at Christ. That's what Mark is doing here for Jesus with us. And we're supposed to understand from that what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So that's what we're going to do for the rest of our time tonight is what is the Jesus that we see when the spotlight's turned on and how does our following him change based upon this story? Uh, I hope hope that it makes your heart glow in a a weird sort of gospel way to see Jesus sleeping on the boat because we've talked about this before. Why was he sleeping that day? Wasn't it because he did not take time to sleep on the land? I mean, that's the most obvious answer. It's because Jesus is asleep on the boat because he spent himself day and night preaching the kingdom of God. That's why he's asleep when everybody else thinks they're dying. Because he bruised himself and busied himself with all of his might to do the will of the Father. That's why he's so exhausted he's sleeping in the middle of a hurricane. And why is he on the boat in the first place? He's not, you know, why not go somewhere and take a nap? He's on the boat so he can go to the other side and preach to the Gentiles. So he can continue to spend himself for the sake of the gospel. You know, why not lay your head down for 15 minutes on dry, safe land and just recoup? Because he's got another place to go and other people to preach and, and touch. Now, why did he do all that? Why, why was his heart so set on being so wonderfully righteous, on being so self-sacrificially righteous, and just giving his whole self every moment of every spare second to please God? Of course, because he loved and honored the Father. But I can't say this too often. We've said it probably ten times in our short time together. But once again, he's doing it to attain our perfect righteousness. He labored with all of his might. He wearied himself in the work of the Lord because that's what God deserves. That's what God requires of us. And yet that's precisely what we have not been given. So God sent Jesus to do it, and we're here watching a kind of recording of it, a recording of God accomplishing our righteousness that he required of us, accomplishing that in the person of Jesus so he could give it to us, so he could count it to us. That's what Mark wants us to just sit back and marvel at. To just sit here tonight and enjoy seeing Jesus. Similar to a man stopping as he's walking down the sidewalk and just enjoying a sunset. Just taking it in for a second. You know, you get those beautiful glimpses sometimes. You just want to stop and take it in. That's what he wants us to do tonight. Just stop and take in the glorious, glowing accomplishment of Jesus spending himself to please his Father. Because that's what the Father deserves. And that's what the Father has asked of us. That's what we haven't given him. So Jesus is accomplishing it on our behalf. He's exhausted for us. And incidentally, we see something else about Jesus here that makes this suffering all the more amazing. If you look at the disciples' question in verse 41, it's a legitimate question. Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? Who is this? What in the world? It's a legitimate question. This story proves once again that the the, the man Jesus is actually something much, much more. He was sleeping, so he's a man. And not only is he sleeping, he's dead asleep. He's like your teenager on Saturday morning. You can't wake up. And he's just completely wiped out, dead in the world. So we dare not forget that Jesus was a man. We we, we dare not read these gospel stories and minimize the sacrifice of Jesus and say, well, yeah, he's God. No, he's truly man. And... He got tired. He got worn out, just like you or I would have if we worked all day. But then this fully man stands up and tells the rolling waves to shut up. And they do. They don't kind of listen. They don't slowly listen. They don't reluctantly listen. They defy the laws of physics and immediately disappear in perfect calmness. Who then is this? Who is this man that by the sheer authority of his word dispels chaos and demands perfect peace from creation? 
Well, it can be none other than God Himself. Only the Word of God can do such things. So just a reminder, it, you know, a reminder that's, that you know, it wasn't some poor old guy who saved us sitting around 2,000 years ago thinking, you know what, yeah. I don't have anything else better to do. It's none other than God Himself, the eternal Son, the, the glorious Trinity who takes in the flesh, dwells among us, and suffered and bled for us. It's God who saved us from God. Isn't that true? It's God who saves us from the wrath of God. That's what the 19th century hymn writer said, What wondrous love is this, O my soul? O my soul, what wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to lay aside his crown for my soul? Well, that's the light that Mark shines on Jesus, glorious Savior that we serve. And there's only two proper responses to this. Lord, make us more like Jesus, first of all. I hope you read this and find your heart saying, let me sleep on the boat. God, give me a heart that I'm unwilling to waste one second of my life on mere bodily necessities, like sleeping. Give me that same heart of Jesus that is just aglow with the work of your kingdom. Unwilling to to take anything else that, that might push that to the side. Just seizing every moment, taking it captive to preach and proclaim and declare your kingdom come in Jesus. That's the heart we see in Jesus here. No, I won't sleep. I have more people to preach to. And second, Lord, we can never be that like Jesus was. That's just... We're not going to be that, right? But we cling to Him and thank Him that He spent Himself in a way that we never will. That He pleased the Father on our behalf and now that we have His perfect righteousness. So that was the first part, the revelation of Jesus. Let's turn now to the second part. of, Okay, well what does that tell us about discipleship? And this is where I feel like the main application is. We're going to start by zooming in on verse 40 here. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? You notice Jesus doesn't say, Why'd you wake me up? Jeez, man, I was sleeping. I was dreaming. I was having a good dream there. It, it wasn't waking him up that he rebuked them for. That wasn't it. In fact, I, I can envision a situation where they're drowning. They did the right thing to wake him up. Because he can actually do something about it, right? It's not the fact that they woke him up. It's what they said and the attitude and heart with which they woke him up. Why are you acting so cowardly, he says. In other words, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So it's not that they woke him up. It's the panic and the fear. They have no faith. What's faith? What's a good word? Let's be interactive for a second. What's another good synonym for faith? Trust. My favorite. Trust. That's what the disciples are lacking, is, is trust. Their problem is not an intellectual problem. Jesus didn't wake up and say, look guys, just think about it. This amount of water in the boat, we only have 2.5 miles left. We're going to make it. This makes sense. It's not an intellectual problem that they have. So, the faith isn't surely just a, a thought problem. It's a lack of trust that created their panic. It's a lack of trust that made Jesus rebuke them. Still, after living with me, after talking with me, after seeing what I've done, have you still no faith? Saying, do you still not trust me? That's it. That's the big problem. They don't trust Jesus. They don't trust Jesus' word. They don't trust Jesus' care and purpose. We're going to look at all three of those briefly. Now, I know we haven't walked with Jesus the same way that these 12 guys did. We haven't been there with them like they were. But because of the Holy Spirit speaking through the Holy Scriptures, in a sense, we were there when He healed the leper. Because we get to participate in it through the meditating on Scripture. We, we weren't there when Jesus turned water into wine, which is what I was supposed to be preaching on tonight. But, but, but in two weeks we will be there, in a sense, as we behold it with the eyes of our, with the eyes of our heart. Right? That's the glory of the gospel narrative. We get to walk with Jesus in a way that's just very precious. We're disciples of Jesus, just like these men were disciples in the boat. And we've seen what the disciples saw through the scriptures. And so, the point is, Christ expects and demands the same trust from us as he did from them. 
in, in the storms or crises of our life, and in our everyday get up and go, take a shower, go to work, deal with the same old junk day in and day out, whichever side of the spectrum in all of that, Jesus expects us to trust him the same way he expected the disciples to trust him this moment when they thought the boat was sinking. And in this text, there are, I already indicated them, but there's, I, I see at least three ways that the disciples that were expected to trust Jesus. Three, three areas in which Jesus expected and demanded trust from them. And three that he does for us as well. Number one, Christ expects us to trust him in his word. To, to take him at his word, in other words. The same way that a husband would expect his wife or vice versa. Take, expect some, when I say something, you trust me. You take me at my word, right? Again, verse 38. Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? They woke him and said to him. We're dying, we're dead. Okay, look back at verse 35. What did Jesus say in verse 35? Let us go across to the other side. So here's Jesus. Guys, we're going to we're going to the other side. I cannot talk tonight. I think I had too much caffeine. We're going to the other side. The disciples, we're dying. We're not going to make it to the other side. Which one is it? You getting it? They didn't trust his word, right? We can't be sure why they didn't trust his word. Perhaps they thought maybe when he said that earlier, he didn't know there was going to be a storm. Or maybe he knew but didn't care. One of those two options. But, but either way, what was missing in the disciples was the rock-solid bet-your-life-on-it trust that Jesus' word is God's word. And that earth can pass away, the universe can be rolled up like a scroll, heaven and earth can turn to dust, but every period and every exclamation that ever came from Jesus' mouth will come true. They didn't have that. That's what he expected his disciples to feel and to own in their trust for him. But they didn't have this kind of assurance at all yet. When God says, this is what's going to happen. This will come to pass. And we panic and say, oh, I don't know if it's going to work, God. We're in the boat with the disciples, exercising our lack of trust in his word. The disciple of Jesus Christ, whether it's Peter, Andrew, James, John, or Ryan should be like Abraham. There's a really great story of Abraham that's confusing, but when you read it in light of all of Scripture, it becomes this glorious gospel story. God's Word promised Abraham that his God-given miraculous son, Isaac, would turn into a great nation. Remember that? Well, <clears throat> they'd be more numerous than the stars in the sky, etc. But before Isaac was married, before Isaac had any children, God comes to him between his birth and before he gets married, and says, you know what, Abraham, i got something I want you to do today. Oh, what's that, God? I want you to take your son, your only son, and go up the mountain and kill him. Sacrifice him. And he obeyed. He went so far as to hold the knife above him, ready to thrust it down and sacrifice his son. Now, that's a confusing story until you read the book of Hebrews. Shed some light on it. We're told in Hebrews, in the Hall of Faith, that... Abraham was so sure that God's promise would be true. That Isaac would be a multitude of nations. He was so sure of that that he reasoned to himself, if God wants me to kill him, he's going to raise them back up. He's going to resurrect him. He's going to do something. But Isaac is going to live and turn into a multitude of nations because God said it and it must be true. See, it made more sense to Abraham than... He would have to kill his son and God would resurrect his son and turn him into a multitude of nations. That made more sense than God might not fulfill his promise. Are we there? Are you there with that in God's word? That's a disciple of Christ in terms of trust. In this story, Mark has showed us several truths about our master. He's not just an everyday kind of guy. This is God sitting in the back of the boat accomplishing our righteousness with the word of God in his mouth and the ability to control life circumstance with just a one word rebuke to the waves. That's our master. His word is as firm as the foundations of the earth. And Mark wants us to learn these truths and step back and ask ourselves, okay, Ryan, what is there in my life today 
that's inconsistent with who Jesus is here. What's there in your life that, that treats the word of Christ as if it were just a word from your friend or neighbor or acquaintance? What is there in your life this moment that doesn't get that it's a universal impossibility that one adjective from the mouth of Christ wouldn't come true? Maybe there's something, some area in your life, relational, familial, that you, an area of your life you've labeled hopeless. You got any of those? Difficult marriage, grown children, bad job, something. And your heart has just sort of put that into the hopeless category. It's, it's doomed. Maybe you've written those things off. Did you know that Christ said that all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me? All of it. Hopeless, as a disciple of Christ, is panic. It's the same as panic. Thinking your marriage is hopeless is the exact same panic that Jesus woke up and rebuked these disciples for. It's the exact same. Not trusting Jesus' word. Or, or maybe there's deep abandonment and loneliness in your life. Did you know Christ said, Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age? You can bank on that. You don't think that's possibly going to maybe come true. You consider it more sure than the universe itself. If there is a blink of an eye moment in the life of a born-again Christian where Christ is absent from them, then he's not God. And God doesn't exist, and the world ceases to be, and you've got nothing else to worry about because there's nothing, right? That, that's more likely than that God's word would fail. It won't. It can't. And if he said he's with us, then he is, Period. So the disciple trusts Christ's word. No, you're not perishing disciples. Shoot. If they would have died on that lake, then the universe wouldn't have been created and none of us would have ever existed. It's, it's, it sounds so foolish for them to say they're perishing, and yet there are an equal number of foolish things in our lives where we betray our doubt in Christ's word every day. He's never failed a single person in the history of the universe. He's not going to fail us today. So we trust his word. We know his word and we trust his word. Number two, so he expects us to trust his word. Number two, he expects us to trust his care. The disciples didn't think Jesus cared. And this is where we're hitting the nail on the head and we're not too far from being done. This is the biggest disappointment for Jesus, the thing that really occasioned his rebuke. When they rouse Jesus in their panic from, from his sleep, their words are full of their theology. Just like when we're scared, our words are full of our theology. When we're hurting, when somebody's dying in the hospital and we get down on our knees and pray, that's when our theology really comes bleeding out of us. This is what they believe in their hearts. Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? What could they have said that evidenced a greater lack of trust? Don't you care? What a thing to say to Jesus, by the way. I just kept thinking, I couldn't help but think about this. His very presence in that boat that moment was so that he could attain righteousness to give to them because they lacked it. He is there in the boat saving their eternal souls and they say, don't you care about us, Jesus? Come on, man. (laughs) And, And his presence in the boat with them, the fact that they're in the boat, is not because they decided to care for Jesus, because Jesus picked them out. He called them and set his care on them in his grace. And here they turn around and say, don't you care? Hasn't he done that for us? Did we come to Christ? Did we pick Jesus? Or has he plucked us out? And yet we turn around and say in our lives, don't you care about me? Don't you care about me? What? That statement is, is universally wrong for one more reason. It's universally wrong because according to John... Jesus was there in the flesh defining love. In this moment on the boat, Jesus is writing the eternal Webster definition for love. Right? In this is love. Remember that? In this is love. Here he is, defining for the rest of time what it means to love. Not just generically, but these 12 people. And these 15 people. And they wake him and say, don't you care? Don't you care? That's what, that's what these life and death situations bring out of a person. 
the, the life and death situations like this storm, they bring out the worst in our hearts sometimes. In this case, the situation brought out of the heart of the disciples that completely didn't believe that Jesus ultimately cared for them. Of course, at, at another time, in, in another situation, the disciples are sitting around with 5,000 other men and women, and Jesus takes a few loaves of bread and a few fish, and he gives them food until their stomachs are full. And guess what chorus they're singing? What a friend we have in Jesus. He is great. He really loves me. Cares for me. I love you, man. But as soon as their stomachs are empty and their physical safety is threatened, all of a sudden their faith is in question and they have no assurance about Christ's heart towards them. That's not discipleship, beloved. That, but that is us. I've seen it so many times as a pastor. A, a true disciple does not measure how much Jesus cares for him or her based on the circumstances I'm going through right now. That's not the measure of Jesus' heart towards you. This is so important. I wish that we could afford a few banners. I don't really like banners. But if we could, put them up here and write this on them. Because this is one of the things that you can say to your blue in the face, but we just don't process it for some reason. Most, most Christians, are go, we're all going to go into a serious crisis situation at some moment. And Pastor Dennis or somebody is going to come visit you in the hospital and, and somebody is going to say, I, I don't know, Pastor, I guess God's punishing me. I must have done something wrong. Hear it again and again and again. No. If you're in Christ, He's already told you that He cares for you. That you're forgiven. And that everything that He does for you, good, bad, storm, bread, fish, whatever, is to accomplish good in your life. And a disciple trusts his word. He said that. Do you trust it? A disciple trusts his word. It doesn't call into question whether Jesus cares for me because life is tough, painful, or otherwise. Let me me just say it one more time. Here's the big banner principle. Don't measure Jesus' care for you by how much money you have, how healthy you are, how your allergies are doing, or how much relative ease you have in your life right now. That cannot be the standard of his care for you. Because you could have it all. You could have all of it and be outside of Christ. And you could have none of it and be hidden in Christ and perfect in God's sight and beloved by Him. Those things cannot be the standard or measure of His care for us. Trust His care for you. Trust Him whether you feel it or not. You know it and you believe it. That's what a disciple does. And finally, Jesus expects us to trust His Word, to trust His care, And finally, to trust His good purposes. He did not take on the flesh, lay aside His crown, take on the flesh, get baptized by John, identify with Israel, battle with Satan in the wilderness, rebuke the Pharisees, spin Himself to the point of complete fatigue, and then call these twelve men to be His disciples so that He could take them out in the middle of the lake and drown them one night. Right? That wasn't his overarching eternal purpose for them. I mean, is, is Jesus that small? I just want to ask him that. Is Jesus that small? That he had no goal or plan or purpose for, for your life that he was going to accomplish? Or, or maybe, maybe the Jesus in their hearts that moment had big plans but wasn't omnipotent to carry them out. The Jesus they were trusting was either very small or powerless. But that's sort of the essence of their lack of trust, and that's what he rebukes them for. But if you think back to our sermon in chapter 1, verse 16 and 20, it's been a while. We learned that Jesus, as the bringer of God's kingdom, he, he brings the kingdom of God by calling men and women to enter in to a new discipleship relationship with Jesus, right? Such that with the purpose and goal of making them look like him. So that's the, the kingdom comes by Jesus calling men and women to be disciples with the purpose that they end up looking like him. That's the goal. That's the purpose from Romans 8. The huge, massive plan. Conforming us to Jesus. Those are big plans. Those are universal plans. Get a bunch of people, make them look like Jesus, establish a new kingdom off the glory of God. That's sort of the Bible, that's sort of the Bible right there. From the beginning, Jesus had been preaching this same message, repent and follow Jesus, And it will teach you and train you and use circumstances in your life to make you more holy, to make you like Him. That's what He's been preaching. 
And now, would he let those purposes just one palmly fade away? That's it. They didn't trust his powerful purposes for their lives. And I'm sorry to say, if Jesus were standing here today, I think he would probably rebuke us all of the same thing. In our lives, we typically are not convinced of Jesus' overarching, powerful purposes at work in our life. So, a million times in one. He calls us to follow him because he intends us to look like him. That's what he's doing. And by the time we reach the kingdom in resurrection, that will be complete. And this is Jesus we're talking about, right? This isn't a businessman. This isn't the president. This is the sovereign king of the universe who has said, this is what I intend to do. Ryan, I will conform you into my image by bringing various trials. He said that, by the way. This is how I'm going to do it. It's not even a secret. I'm going to bring trials. I'm going to bring hardships. It's going to stink sometimes. And all of that is to refine and perfect until you look like me. And so isn't isn't it just the height of unbelief for me to say in the middle of one of those situations he said he was going to do, I turn around and say, God, nothing good could possibly come out of this. What are you doing? Right? And yet, isn't that precisely what we're doing when we get frustrated? Have you ever thought about frustration? Frustration. You know, how are you doing? Oh, no. Okay, I'm just, I'm just kind of frustrated right now. Why? I just got a lot of stuff going on. Okay. That, 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 oh, I can't believe this is happening to me right now attitude. That's frustration. Just take a minute and peer into your heart. Where's that coming from? What is that, what is that saying? This is a good practice, by the way. What am I saying by my frustration? Is it not... This is not good. I'm frustrated. This is not good right now. I don't like it. And whatever I'm going through, this is bad. Darn it. I like it. It's bad. It's not good. C.J. May, frustration is calling into question. Frustration in life is calling into question a sovereign God with good purposes for me. I think we could extend this to say every time we're in the middle of a situation and we just say it's worthless or purposeless or a waste, that's a failure to trust the purpose of Jesus. For a disciple of Christ, there's no accidental circumstance. There's no such thing as a wasted life situation. Everything is making us into the image of Christ. It's been a few years now since I've switched email clients. I used to use a really terrible one um, for all my emailing. And I remember several occasions typing up this is a very mundane example, but typing up a long email, putting thought into it about various different things. Typing, thinking, spending time, and then for some reason, not only to God, some random combination of keystrokes sends me back a page. And this old client wouldn't warn me and say, oh, you're leaving this page, are you sure you want to do this? Like my new one does. Uh, and it was gone. And obviously there's a lot bigger examples, but I can remember just in those situations an immediate and surprisingly strong feeling of anger and frustration and disappointment and aggravation. I'm I'm thankful Gmail doesn't do that anymore, but if I sit back and and read between the lines, I use this example so that you can take this down to the mundane, all the way up to the I'm dying, why? I mean, everything in between, right? If I sit back and read between the lines and look into my heart, that disappointment is coming from one place, a place where apparently in my heart I'm still not trusting a big sovereign purpose for me. I'm not trusting every situation, every circumstance, every tragedy, every success, everything in between, that, that's all Jesus bringing me into his kingdom. Nothing's wasted, beloved. Nothing's wasted. A lost email. Maybe the email's gone. But the circumstance was not a waste as Jesus uses it to conform me into his image. And if my agenda is his agenda, there's no frustration. Because if my agenda is his agenda, guess what? His agenda is always accomplished. I'm frustrated because it's not going my way right now. 
it's not doing it's not happening like I think it should happen it's not good but if, if, if my agenda is his the coming of the kingdom and his kingdom is always coming in my life there's no frustration at least in terms of life circumstances because we can still be disappointed but listen friends never mind whether you or I see the purpose in this circumstance or that circumstance. So what if we don't? Who cares? That's never a condition in the Bible like, hey Bob, as long as you can tell the good I'm going to accomplish, then it's something good. You know, There's nothing like that. It's every good. Every circumstance for good in that it's conforming us into his image. That's it. Whether we see it or not, that really has nothing to do with it. In fact, we're probably going to see it less often than not because that's trust. We don't see it. We don't know. I don't know what you're doing, but I trust your word. I trust your purpose. And you've got to love God for that. Not one pain, not one scraped knee, not, not one overdrawn accidental checking account. Nothing in my life is a waste. He's that big of a God. He's that powerful of a God. He's a great Savior. Don't you love Him? We trust His word. We trust His care. We trust His good purpose in our life. Let's pray. Father, we say we trust, but but we don't at the same time. And we repent, Father, even today of of the instances of frustration and aggravation and discouragement and confusion where we had very small goggles on and we were we were looking at our life and our world through a very, very small perspective of just right now. And we lost sight of you. We lost sight of your, over the entire universe, sustaining every particle care for us. And the good promises in your word. And the stated purposes that you have to conform us. And to use the, the frustrating circumstances in life to make us more like you. God, we've lost sight of that today. And we pray for your forgiveness. Most importantly, we pray for your transformation. That, that tonight and tomorrow, in the days to come, that you would help us to, to gain a, a broader biblical perspective on our life. That we could live life with a biblical worldview at the top of mind. That we could see the, I missed this red light and I'm running late, as an opportunity for your transforming us into, into your image. Accomplishing good. Accomplishing your purposes. Even caring for us, Lord. Help us to see life through that lens and love you more when we should be frustrated from the world's perspective. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.